Hey, there are still some tickets left to see PEL Live, Sunday, July 20th, 1 to 4 p.m. at the Craftsman Table and Tap in Middleton, Wisconsin. Seating is limited, so go reserve your spots right now. Look for the link to PEL Live at PartiallyExaminedLife.com. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 96 is something like, what are the philosophical implications of rhetoric in political discourse, specifically focusing on discourse around scientific topics? Today, we will be discussing the book Scientists as Prophets, a Rhetorical Genealogy with the author Linda Walsh, focusing especially on chapters five with J. J. Robert Oppenheimer, plus an address from 1950 by Oppenheimer called Encouragement of Science. You can join the discussion, get the text, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Seth Paskin, dialing in from Austin, Texas. This is Mark Linsenmeyer from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. Hi, and I'm Linda Walsh. I'm calling from Reno, Nevada. And we are delighted to welcome Linda to our group today. Hi. Linda and I have known each other for quite some time. She was a graduate student at the University of Texas in English and Linguistics at the same time that Mark Wes and I were there studying philosophy. And based on her cross interests in rhetoric and linguistics that crossed over into the philosophical field, I think we somehow stumbled across each other and became fast friends. I think we met at a philosophy party, actually. Yeah. We linguists like to go to the philosophy parties because they were always uh, more exciting than our parties. Which is a desperately sad comment. Well, yeah, I know, but (laughs) I know what I'm saying about linguists. It's fine. You should come to the physics parties. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome, Linda. Welcome. Thank you. And where do you work now, Linda? The University of Nevada, Reno. And I'm an associate professor of English there. And like Seth says, I've got a relatively new book out on the rhetoric of science advisors. And I'm really excited to join you guys and talk a little bit today about rhetoric and philosophy. I have lots of questions for you. Hmm. Maybe we should start with the Oppenheimer bit rather than like on the precog, just diving into your entire rather involved project. Yes. Yes. So we should alert listeners. So we are focusing on one part of Linda's book, specifically around Oppenheimer and the political discourse around the development of nuclear weapons and some of the extensions on that theme. But in her book, she covers quite a few other topics inside of a structure that she lays out early in the book. If you'd like to know more about and understand that overall structure, please go listen to the precog for this episode, which she recorded. Yeah, I covered like 2,500 years. So it, yeah, it gets a little dense in there. I thought your precog was a nice condensation. Yeah, it was hard to do. Basically, I was trying to pick the thread that would lead us most directly to Oppenheimer. So the big rhetorical conflict here, right, was for the most part after the bomb project, after he was a major celebrity for having won the war for the West. Yeah. That at least was his repute. But of course, he had a lot of reservations. He never would say after the fact that he actually regretted it, but still was very vocal in speaking out against, say, the development of the hydrogen bomb, right? A bomb even more powerful, much more powerful than anyone would actually use. Right. Did many public speaking engagements at the very same time that he was continuing to advise the government. And in many of these public speaking engagements, he was stressing just the moral aspect of this, how we now have this thing that we could kill the world with, and we have to be responsible about that. And as scientists, the people who are creating this technology have to themselves take more responsibility and step up and not just say, oh, well, I just create the stuff and, uh, you know, whatever the government does with it, that's their business. Mm-hmm. 
in trying to play both these roles, both in continuing to advise the government and in essence, being an activist, Mm -hmm. there was a conflict here, right? Yeah. And I I think for Oppenheimer, it was an internal conflict as well, because he was really excited about the physics behind first the fission bomb and then the fusion bomb. He initially opposed Edward Teller's crash program for the H-bomb, because I think he said something like it would take an ox cart to deliver it to the target. I mean, he was pretty nasty about it. But once they came up with a little bit better design, you know, in the gray board hearings, he calls it a sweet program. He says there's a sweet solution. So this is a man who at the same time can weigh the horror of a bomb that can wipe out hundreds of thousands of people and the beauty of the physics that leads to the bomb. And so I think for him, it was constantly sort of a back and forth. On the one hand, it was his passion, the pure science. But on the other hand, he was really troubled. It kept him up at night about the way these were weaponized and applied, politically speaking. Part of that conflict seems to come out in the article that we read, the encouragement of science that would be from his general disposition of science being for the betterment of mankind and to solve problems of our flourishing and that using science to develop more weapons was antithetical to that. Yeah, totally. And he calls that the spirit of science in that article, right? So that's how he gets around it. He says... Yeah, we've got this kind of conundrum, right, where we do the pure science, but then there are these applications of it, and one human being can't be responsible for all that. But how do we meld these things? And so he comes up with the concept of the spirit of science, which he talks about in that article. And for him, the key is he talks about openness versus secrecy. And honestly, this is what he thinks is the secret. So he thinks the secret to keeping science in check so it doesn't blow us all up or poison us. He thinks the secret is openness and not keeping scientific developments of no matter what kind, including weapons developments, keeping them open rather than keeping them secret. And this is how he really ran afoul in the end of the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower wasn't really paying too much attention to a lot of what he was saying, even though he had Admiral Strauss, who was Oppenheimer's big nemesis, kind of in his ear saying, this guy's awful, get rid of him. Eisenhower kind of didn't pay any attention until Oppenheimer came up with this really widely reprinted public lecture in which he said that all nations had to share their nuclear secrets. There could be no secrets or we were all going to die. And that's what really got Eisenhower. He was like, okay, I can't put up with this anymore. It crossed a line that Eisenhower couldn't deal with. But that was what Oppenheimer really wanted. I think as he went on, he thought that was going to be our salvation is just to keep everything for the common good in the commons and not have nations keep secrets with nuclear energy. How did he imagine that was going to work out having been on sort of both sides of seeing the Axis versus the Allies and consciously making a decision to work for one side versus the other? Did he imagine that there was going to be some kind of political reorganization or some kind of worldwide enlightenment around that somehow the scientific knowledge was going to draw people to that kind of consensus where it would be appropriate to share it? I think he proposed the United Nations as the home for this. Oppenheimer wanted somebody like the United Nations to put together a international atomic energy commission. And he wanted to send scientific experts from all of the different countries to manage the nuclear stockpiles, to share developments in nuclear physics with each other, to share developments in nuclear energy with each other. I don't know how Oppenheimer felt about nations killing each other with conventional weapons. Maybe he still felt that was fine. I mean, he certainly harbored no love for the Nazis, no doubt. He thought that the development of the bomb would actually mean the end of all war. Yeah. That any war is going to inevitably escalate into all-out nuclear war. And one of the reasons he justified the Hiroshima bombing was that you had to do this in a civilian area. You couldn't just do a demonstration by blowing up an uninhabited island and say, everybody come look at this or something, which was one of the things that was proposed. He said, you have to do it in an area with civilians surrounding it. It was still a military target, but there was a civilian area around it. So not only for experimental purposes, just you could see how many structures were still standing, like how large the blast radius was, that was part of it, but also to show 
how horrible this was so that nobody would ever use it again. Yeah, I think you pretty quickly realized that wasn't going to work, though. Well, it did work for nuclear weapons. I mean, right? it did. But he was really nervous the whole time it wasn't going to work. And he did. You're right. He proposed that solution for Hiroshima. But then he sent a letter to Leslie Groves not long after that saying, you know what, this is a terrible idea. He actually tried to stop the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki after he had originally helped pick the targets. And then pretty quickly, he realized as he got on these commissions and saw the, the way that the nations were racing ahead of each other, the Soviets had Project Joe with the H-bomb a matter of months before we had our first detonation. He was really worried that somebody was going to get a little bit ahead of everybody else and blow everyone off the map. So early on, he was like, yeah, it'll end war. It'll be this permanent detente. We're all good. And then later on, as he kind of saw how secrets were allowing one nation to kind of get a little temporary edge on another nation, I think he was really afraid it was going to be the, not the end of war, it was going to be the end of civilization. So do you think that Oppenheimer was just politically, economically naive and stupid in this respect. I mean, stupid in the most genteel way possible, because it's not even just the case that this would be rhetorically naive in terms of war, but it's also rhetorically naive in terms of commerce. Yeah. I mean, the notion that you would not have people wanting to exercise advantage technologically is really naive. Yep. And it's always been the case in academic research has been a kind of pointing to the thread in science that is for the betterment of mankind and to share the fruits of that intellectual work with everyone. But it's always been a deep tension, especially when it comes to leveraging things that could be valuable or advantage politically. And this wasn't new. I mean, 1945 wasn't the first time that this, mm -hmm. <laughs> this kind of thing happened. He clearly embodies that ethos in science, in the encouragement of science. Mm -hmm. It's it's very familiar. It's still a strong thread throughout science, whether it be in this kind of profit behavior, that role that scientists can take, or just in general in their understanding of the work that they do. Mm -hmm. But all around him were everybody from Bell Labs to the manufacturer of weapons, which had been going on even beforehand. Oh, yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. I really think he was naive, at least his contemporaries. That's their assessment. So Isidore Rabi, who was, you know, one of his best friends, said repeatedly that Oppenheimer was an idealist. And Rabi said several times he would go to him and say, look, you're in trouble. Like Admiral Strauss hates you. You got to realize that every time you make one of these sort of incendiary comments about the openness of science or the U.S. and Soviet Union are like two scorpions in a bottle and neither of them can attack the other without killing themselves. Rabi told him every time you say something like this, you're making enemies at the top and it's not going to be very long before they're going to come after you. And Robbie really felt like that Oppenheimer ignored him. His assessment was that he was idealistic. He had really drunk his own Kool-Aid in terms of this pacifist stuff. And he felt that he ignored until it was too late. Good political counsel from people saying, look, shut up, shut up or get off this commission because they're going to take care of you pretty soon in a way you're not going to like. And I think Robbie just felt like those warnings went really unheeded because Oppenheimer really did believe deep down, this seems to be the assessment in a future where we could have this kind of international openness and understanding and science really could form the foundation of a new progressive society that would end war and bring peace and health to the globe. This really seemed to be a dream he held, not cynically, but really sincerely. So maybe we should look at his statement of that in the speech, The Encouragement of Science. Mm -hmm. This is 1950. 
it is an address delivered to an awards banquet of the Science Talent Institute. So this is not going to be like heavy duty step by step philosophy. But I, I don't know that he even ever wrote heavy duty step by step philosophy. He was definitely not to my knowledge. No, yeah, he was a genius. Definitely, it could learn languages very quickly. There's a lot of biographical stuff about him. I can point people to a few videos and podcasts and things of people talking about his various talents and what he couldn't couldn't do. And was he actually good at math? Well, <laughs> there were questions about the quality of some aspects of his work, but yet he did contribute stuff that's still taught today in theoretical physics after apparently failing as an experimental physicist that was part of his training that did not go so well, which would made it all the more surprising that he got assigned to lead this lab, right? An entirely engineering, managerial, mm-hmm. applied thing. This is exactly what he did not have experience in. He mm-hmm. was a theoretical physicist by this time. But the reason he was chosen was because the general who was choosing this, Oppenheimer was of those people he interviewed, the one who could explain to him most clearly what the science Science was. So he really got this because of his rhetoric, because of his speech giving abilities. So that's really what we're focusing on here today. I mean, there's some ideas in here. I would be extremely surprised if there's anything particularly original, but even just looking at this short speech as an example of his rhetoric is right on point for what we're doing here today. Yeah, you know, he has the same structure in a lot of his speeches, and you can see it here in the Encouragement of Science speech as well. He gave a lot of speeches. It's probably the dominant form in which his public rhetoric showed up. He wrote articles as well, but almost all the articles that he produced that were published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which is where a lot of his stuff showed up, they were collected in the BBC Wright lectures. They were all originally public lectures. And so this is kind of the mode, you know, the classical speech. He quite clearly has an introduction in each of his speeches, what would be called the exordium in classical rhetoric. He has the part where he lays out his argument, which is called the dispositio. He doesn't do a lot with the refutatio, which is like considering rebuttal. He tries to assemble some evidence, that's the confirmatio, and then he has the peroration, which is always the conclusion. And his perorations are usually very, very strong, and they always have a very, very strong moral flavor to them. But The structure of the speech is pretty much the same as the other ones. He usually finds a central metaphor that he's going to elaborate. And on this one, it's the spirit of science. And he gets to it through Jefferson, right? This is Jefferson's spirit. And he turns that into the spirit of science. And that's the dominant metaphor. So almost all of his speeches pick one dominant metaphor. And they kind of get to it through some textual means. In this case, Jefferson's writings. It may be a philosopher. It may be a poet. It might be another physicist. But he'll start with someone's words. He'll extrapolate from that a key metaphor, and then he'll spend the rest of the speech kind of elaborating on the metaphor, and then he always draws a conclusion, which is sort of like a so what? So what does this mean for the way we live in society? Here's what scientists need to do in order to be useful to their fellow humans. Here's how scientists need to behave with each other and with the public. Here are the moral principles they need to pursue. That structure is pretty much intact in this speech, and that's usually his modus operandi for these. Let me read a a section from it, just from the very end, where it begins with the spirit of science. You had a Latin word for this. This is where he begins this conclusion. Yeah, it's the peroration, the peroratio. Yeah, it's the classical conclusion in a speech. Yeah. Yeah. This is just after he's been talking about Jefferson and noting how much Jefferson's work was suffused with understanding science as being, including the notion of progress and openness and freedom. So then Oppenheimer goes on, he says... What are these lessons that the spirit of science teaches us for our practical affairs? Basic to them all is that there may be no barriers to freedom of inquiry. Basic to them all is the ideal of open-mindedness with regard to new knowledge, new experience, and new truth. Science is not based on authority. It owes its acceptance and its universality to an appeal to intelligible, communicable evidence that any interested man can evaluate. There is no place for dogma in science. The scientist is free to ask any question, to doubt any assertion, to seek for any evidence, to correct any error. 
Where science has been used in the past to erect a new dogmatism, that dogmatism has found itself incompatible with the progress of science, and in the end the dogma has yielded, or science and freedom have perished together. Our own political life is predicated on openness. We do not believe any group of men adequate enough to or wise enough to operate without scrutiny or without criticism. We know that the only way to avoid error is to detect it, that the only way to detect it is to be free to inquire. We know that the wages of secrecy are corruption. We know that in secrecy, error undetected will flourish and subvert. And do you hear how he's doing the Declaration of Independence right there? You know, yes. We hold these truths to be self-evident, and he has a strong parallel structure. We do not believe. We know. We know, right? So he's using, yeah. in rhetoric, we call it isocolon. But it's this figure where you have the same beginning to each sentence, and then you vary the ending. It echoes very strongly with the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, and he's not allowing for any other version of science than this particular kind. Right. And the secret magical alchemist, I'm going to make gold part of science. He's basically aligning it directly with liberal democracy. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. And with that thread of it. Yeah, absolutely. And which is why he picked Jefferson. Yeah, he's absolutely tying science to classical liberalism that says we only make policy based on evidence to which we all have access in the policy. Yes. Yeah, and in fact, the same would go true for laws, that we make laws based upon public deliberation, and anyone can disagree with them, and then we come to some kind of majority rule or some kind of representative rule so that the laws themselves fit in some respect and are exposed to public criticism and public vetting. There's a slippery little thing he does here, though, on that note, and that is, he, you know, he acts like science is going to be the universally accessible basis on which we're going to make laws, right? Yep. But he kind of hints at it that, in fact, scientists have access to a lot of information that regular folks don't, right? So how are you going to yeah. do that in a liberal democracy? The way he kind of slides those two things together is in the very last paragraph. He says, I wish for you a world of confidence in man and man's humanity, a world of confidence in reason, so that as you work, you may be inspired by the hope that what you find will make men freer and better, in which, working as specialists in what may be recondite parts of the intellectual life of the time, you are nevertheless contributing in a direct and basic way to the welfare of mankind. So he's saying, I know that you're doing something special in your labs that other people don't have access to, but the way I'm going to make this all work, the way I'm going to make you guys work in a liberal democracy is that the goal of everything you do is going to be the direct and basic welfare of mankind. So that's how he kind of slides those things back together, even though they are really separate. Scientific knowledge and sort of lay political knowledge are really pretty separate. But at the end there, he tries to kind of dovetail them back together. There's a nice little, I want to say ironic, but I don't know if it's ironic notion. Linda, tying back to what you were saying earlier about Oppenheimer's friend warning him about the course he was taking in this extended quote by Jefferson, which goes on for, you know, three or four different paragraphs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Part of it says, he's quoting Jefferson here, to preserve the freedom of the human mind then and the freedom of the press, every spirit should be ready to devote itself to martyrdom. For as long as we may think as we will and speak as we think, the condition of man will proceed an improvement. The generation which is going off the stage has deserved well of mankind, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then he says, but that the enthusiasm which characterizes youth should lift its parasite hands against freedom and science would be such a monstrous phenomenon as I cannot place among possible things in this age and in this country. Mm -hmm. Almost as if to say, I can't believe that I would be somehow martyred in the name. And if I am, mm -hmm. you should beware that the ones who do it are standing against freedom, freedom of speech, mm -hmm. freedom of thought. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what happened to him, right? And, yep. you know, if you see him as the voice of this kind of liberal democratic freedom of knowledge and decision making, then what's opposed on the other side is um, the folks he worked for, the government and the security and the secrecy that they imposed on his work. 
And so his downfall in the Grey Board hearings, which I talk about in the precog at some length, really his downfall after the Grey Board hearings was hinged on this little tiny phrase called lack of enthusiasm for the hydrogen bomb. And so the idea behind this is very strong and it's very striking. It's that if you work for the government, not only do you owe us your expertise, you actually owe us your opinions as a human being. And so if we want you to build an H-bomb, not only do you build us the H-bomb, but you are excited to build us the H-bomb. And you are not allowed not to be excited about that. So the government is going to control not only your thoughts about the world, but it's going to control your evaluations about the world. It's going to control your moral structure. And if you can't accept that, you're an enemy of the government. That was sort of the core of the final charges against him in the Grey Board hearings. That was kind of what they centered on. And that's exactly, it's almost chilling. I mean, that's what Jefferson is talking about here as being sort of the death of freedom and democracy. But in fact, that was the death of Oppenheimer's career, at least. So the problem wasn't that he remained impartial and strictly sticking to the facts and being simply, but that his value-laden approach to the subject wasn't of the appropriate type? It appeared to be. He said in the Grey Board hearings, yeah, sure, I opposed the first program because it was clunky. It was junk. Later, when Teller came up with a new design, I supported that because I thought it was a better science. So he claimed in the Grey Board hearings to have been quite actually even-handed about it. He said, you know, if you wanted somebody who was just going with the science, I was going with the science. And I told you this first one was a dog and the second one was going to work. But that, in fact, it wasn't good enough for them. They still read that as a lack of enthusiasm for the Eisenhower's sort of hawkish stance. Isn't it even worse, though? Doesn't it amount to saying, yeah, I think the science is awesome now, but I still think it's a crap program because of my values. Mm -hmm. That's the political mistake, not being sensitive to the way in which he's speaking of it. Mm -hmm. One thing that seemed to be sort of common about scientists who are using prophecy speak and the rhetoric of prophecy is that they're true believers of a sort. I'm wondering if that is a feature of prophecy speaking or are they separate rhetorically that it may be that most often you have people like Oppenheimer or Carson who are true believers, but as a matter of principle, it's really just whether or not they're deft enough. I mean, to know how to use language and be pragmatic about it. Are there pragmatic prophets or are they always true believers? And that the people who are pragmatic or politically oriented prophets really aren't prophets. They use a different kind of rhetoric there. Uh-huh. I'm trying to think of the people I looked at, and you just mentioned Carson, you mentioned Oppenheimer, Carl Sagan, Stephen Jay Gould. For sure, the people I looked at, I would say there wasn't any evidence. They were like, okay, here's the deal. You know, I actually believe this other thing over here, but I really think it's expedient for our country or it's necessary for my own power for me to go this direction. And so I'm going to do that. I don't think I could find a cynic among them. The question is, could you have a cynical prophet, right? Is it just a set of skills? You deploy certain rhetoric, you deploy certain arguments, and you step up onto that prophetic soapbox, right? And you don't have to be a true believer. You just inhabit that role and it works. I'd have to think about that because I guess to me, what it comes down to is, can you fake charisma? Max Weber talks about the evolution of public authority. And I like his scheme a lot. And the first stage is charismatic authority. He kind of locates this back in our tribal past when a charismatic tribal leader or a shaman would lead a small tribal band and would guide those people based on the personal magnetism and perhaps, you know, the suggestion of supernatural power. Charisma, of course, means gift. And the notion was that God had gifted these people with something special, something that other people didn't have. So I really do think prophetic authority is a form of charismatic authority. And so if the question for me would be, could you fake charisma? And if the answer was yes, then yeah, I guess you could just deploy the technology of prophetic authority, I guess, and make it work. 
of the people I looked at, I didn't see anybody that I think would fall into that category. They were all true believers in their particular program, which it must be said was not necessarily a religious program. But they, whatever it was, whether it was saving the ecosystem for Rachel Carson, whether it was making England the best country on the planet for Francis Bacon, whether it was international peace for Robert Oppenheimer, they found something that they were passionate enough about that they dared to speak in public the way that they did. And could you fake that? I suppose so. I haven't seen it happen. You kind of have to have drunk the Kool-Aid to really make the prophetic stance work as a scientist. If you can't make it work, that you're probably going to avail yourself of some other kind of ethos, some other kind of stance to make your public point. You're not going to go the prophetic route. Did you think of Socrates in this respect? I thought a lot about Socrates because I work with his apology in the first chapter. Yep. And he talked about the Delphic Oracle a lot. And he got put to death by the state for corrupting the youth and pointing to false gods. It's true. And when he and in the apology, it's really funny. He's like, well, I did it because the Delphic Oracle told me to. So if you're mad at me, you should go talk to Apollo. Also his own daemon. Yes, that's right. His inner conscience, which also would be right in line with the way you interpret what's going on with you know someone like Oppenheimer, some, someone who's speaking their conscience. Yeah. They're not faking it. Right. Yeah, I don't think Socrates is faking it either now. Can you make a passionate, idealistic cause dovetail with your own ascension in terms of political power? Yeah, I think so. I think Oppenheimer was very sensitive to the fact he liked the fact that he was made the head of the Institute for Advanced Study. He liked signing Einstein's paycheck. There's no doubt about that. The power that he got, he liked a lot. So can you combine being a true believer and kind of your own public notoriety? Yeah, I think so. So Socrates may have done that, but I still would put Socrates in the category of a true believer. I don't know what you guys think. I think he is. I just, as you pointed out earlier, when you say scientists as prophets, you have an understanding of what it means to be a prophet that has nothing to do with religiosity or religion at all. And maybe you should say a little bit more about that. It's a rhetorical category. Yeah, sure. So let me just say what the prophetic ethos is. Well, first say what an ethos is. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not even just an ethic. It's not a professional set of standards that you're adhering to. It is a social role. Yes, yes. that's right. We use this term, you'll hear it. Companies have a certain ethos or a politician has a certain ethos. But the way I think of it specifically is a political role. In a given debate, there's sort of roles for people to play, right? They're sort of the protagonists, the opposition, some mediators they are going to be the people who bring the evidence. I mean, we sort of expect these roles to be played. The individual identity of the person who steps into that role is maybe not even that terribly important to us, but there's these very habitual roles we expect in certain situations we go through over and over again. And so one of these, I call those kind of habitual roles, I call that an ethos. So it is, it's like a social role that we expect people to play. Cicero said that ethos essentially is a good man speaking well. So ethos was attached to a person. It was really closely related to charisma. It was actually very closely related to what we've been talking about. But it's essentially, it was your character. That's one definition of ethos. I prefer this other definition that's a little bit older. And it, that word, um, ethos in this case, harkens back to a Greek word that means dwelling place. I use the word soapbox a lot to kind of modernize it. But it's the idea of we have this expected role for someone to play in this situation. It's like, okay, we have the people who are pro-industry and they don't want to do anything to limit carbon emissions. We have the people who are pro-environment and they want us to limit carbon emissions. They're arguing with each other. They're at loggerheads. And now we turn to someone else to settle it for us. Sort of like a spotlight comes on, on a place to step up into, right? And that is the sort of scientific prophetic ethos, right? Because we're turning to, it's like, hey, scientist, Tell us the facts about climate change so we can get over the horns of this dilemma and get on with this debate. And so that's what I was interested in in this book is looking at this kind of habitual role we turn to every time we grind to a halt in our public deliberation and we look outside of our argument 
for someone to settle it for us. And not anyone can settle it for us. So if you're going to inhabit the stance of the prophetic ethos, you're going to step up on the soapbox. You need to have certain qualifications. And basically this means is you need to have access to a source of information that the rest of us don't. If we had been able to get that info, we would have settled this issue already. So you, the prophet, had better have access to a source of information that's special that we don't have access to. That will be the grounds on which we will listen to you when we wouldn't necessarily listen to just average Joe off the street. So prophetic ethos for me is a role that can be played in a public debate that is kind of ground to a halt. And this role can be played by anybody who has access to a special body of knowledge that's not available to the public at large. Does it have to be access to a special body of knowledge or can it also be access to a special set of experiences? Absolutely. So if you have special experience that nobody has, I would count that as same thing. A lot of the ancient prophets, right? They would have a vision. That's a special experience that no one else has. So it's not necessarily that they know a bunch of really arcane data. It's just that they had a special encounter with the divine and that no one else had. And they're going to come back and share this. So yeah, absolutely special experiences or special knowledge. So that's one half of it, right? Is that you have this special channel into something that the public doesn't. The other half of it is that you don't just have it and then that's it, right? You have to come back and you, you share it with the public at large. And you do that in a way that goads them to talk about their values, to put the special information that you bring back, you kind of plop that in the public sphere and you say, now you attach your values to that and you can make a decision about how to move forward. So it's got the prophetic ethos has these two parts to it. One is the special knowledge or experience. And the other is this ability to start a public dialogue about who we are as the United States or who we are as scientists or who we are as women or whoever, whatever public you're talking to. This is a set of core values that makes up that public. And those are the values that need to come into play and be attached to the special information. And then you can kind of move forward and make policy. So just, I mean, a really quick example, people often think that the Delphic Oracle just told Athens what to do and they did it. If you go back and actually look at what happened, that's not the case. The Delphic Oracle would say these things that were really cryptic and they would have to take them back to the assembly, which is like kind of like Congress. They would have to take them back to the Athenian assembly and debate them in the assembly to figure out what they meant. So this, the, the most famous example is probably of this is, these are called amphiboles, these kind of ambiguous sayings. Athens went to Delphi. This is after the, you know, the movie 300, the hot gates, Thermopylae. The Persians are encroaching again and Athens is freaked out. They send a emissary to Delphi and Delphi comes back and tells them, It's this horrible prediction that says, you know, the roofs of the Parthenon are going to run black with blood. You guys are finished. And Athens has a really interesting reaction to that. They don't freak out and kill themselves. They go back to Delphi and they say, do you have anything else? Because that was really bad. And (laughs) they do. And the Pythia, who is the, that's the Delphic Oracle, the Pythia says, okay, here's another one. Athens will be saved by a wooden wall. Okay, that's a head scratcher. So now the emissary goes back to Athens and they debate it in the assembly and say, okay, what does this mean? Athens will be saved by a wooden wall. And there was one group of people who interpreted it very literally. And they said, well, Delphi wants us to build a wooden wall around the Parthenon and that's how we'll be saved. And there was another group led by Themistocles, you know, the very famous orator and statesman. Themistocles said, no, Delphi knows that our strength is our navy and the wooden wall is the sides of our ships. And if we go out in our ships to meet the Persians, we will defeat them and be victorious. That's what she meant. And Themistocles has his way in the assembly. He wins and Athens goes out and defeats the Persians. So that's kind of the most famous example of of, uh, how Delphi worked. But notice, you know, it wasn't just like a off on black, white, one, zero kind of thing. 
she made this extremely ambiguous utterance, and it really relied on Athens themselves debating about what it meant, attaching their values to it, right? They knew that their navy was very special, right? So they attached that value to it. Then they make policy. So that's kind of in a nutshell how the prophetic ethos works. So it's access to special knowledge and then this ability to start a public dialogue about values that leads to political action. That characterization of prophetic ethos, having some special knowledge and access to the public, that makes sense. What's strikingly different to me about the story you just told about the Pythia and the cases with Oppenheimer and Carson and other scientists is that they're acting as prophets, as advocates as well. Mm-hmm. They're being prophets in the sense of leaders of a discipline or a cult or a, mm-hmm. they have disciples, that kind of thing. That's different than what I see in the Pythia makes some utterance that is very cryptic and then there's a bunch of debating. Because that sounds a lot more like the different modes in which the scientists as prophet can be interacting in mm-hmm. This sort of progressive mode that they're talking about what we ought to do. That's the way in which Oppenheimer and Carson are, are oh, working. Oh, for sure. It. Definitely. And what I usually think of as a prophet is somebody saying, you're doing this wrong. You ought to do X. Mm-hmm. And then the other side in which you have a prophet saying, well, here's what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then everybody go talk amongst yourselves kind of thing where they are acting in sort of a what you would I would think of as the unbiased advisor kind of mode and not being an advocate of a particular point of view. And that's what the Pythia sounds more like. Now, I know that you're sort of mining the prophecy in ancient Greece as a mode and a structure for understanding the later part, but maybe Mm -hmm. we can use it as occasion to talk about these different ways in which prophetic speech works as being advocates versus being sort of voices from the wilderness and then other people go around and think about it. Mm -hmm. Part of the structure that hasn't been explicitly articulated is that the access to the specialized knowledge, which is brought to the polity for the purposes of making a decision about political action is driven by a desire for certainty. So Mm -hmm. the goal is to get to a point where there is uncertainty about what to do The purpose or the point of the prophet is to provide something which gets to certainty. Clearly, the Delphic Oracle is not a great example of that. And so, the question becomes, to what extent is advocacy part of driving to a level of certainty? And how is that possible to provide some level of certainty if you're not simply handing over the facts? Like, the box hasn't been opened. We don't know if Schrodinger's cat is alive or dead. The scientist's job is to go and open the box and then tell us the cat is alive or dead. And based on what the outcome is, we'll know what we should do. And what's, I think, interestingly ambiguous about all this is that if the prophet is an advocate, then to a certain extent, because the prophet is an advocate, they're advocating a certain position. They're driving for certainty around their position, in which case their credibility has to be questioned. I think there's Mm -hmm. at least that. There are a bunch of other questions around that notion of certainty, like... What if there's no certainty to be found, which is what Linda brings up in the later chapters, which we aren't discussing explicitly, though, about climate change, where there is no fact of the matter to be discovered. It is a matter of interpretations of probabilities and data sets. And then also the question of what if the polity does not share a set of values? If there's no 
basis already in the political body for coming to a consensus, what good does certainty do? Well, what about that division that Linda made in the book between epistemological and political certainty so that it doesn't matter that the Delphic article doesn't know the future. It can't actually see how the war is going to turn out that the point of how it functions as a political entity, as political advisors is it gives, it could be any old advice. And it almost, it was refreshing to read about this as like, yes, this was an actual political organization. This is not just a literary device that mm-hmm. is, says whatever the thing that will produce the maximum amount of irony for the protagonist in a fictional story, but that they were actually giving advice on on real matters. So it almost doesn't matter what they say. And in fact, some of the ways that they gave advice that you described were self-consciously non-cognitive was just we've uh, sealed up two boxes mm-hmm. and here oracle <laughs> point to one or the other just say red or blue and that'll tell us which one to do it's just they need somebody and but yet that could produce on your account political certainty because mm-hmm. they get the answer back they said oh the god said blue blue means we attack the oracle <laughs> didn't even know that blue meant attack but just picked randomly But that was enough to produce political certainty, even though there obviously was no epistemological certainty there to be gained about the future. I suppose it depends on how much of a true believer the Athenians were, because you could argue that there was epistemological certainty operating there. And it was that Apollo knew the contents of the insides of those jars and that Apollo was picking the one that was in line with what the true future was going to be. Right. You could argue that both epistemological certainty and political certainty were operating in that story. But proving epistemological certainty just gets to be a rat's nest. It's really difficult to do that. Actually, maybe there's something ambiguous here, even in the notion of epistemological certainty, is that by epistemological certainty, you could mean that there is a certain knowledge, like in the Cartesian sense, I am certain that two plus two equals four. That is a epistemologically, objectively certain thing versus certain knowledge, meaning I'm really certain. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. So certain knowledge isn't, yeah, as in the first sense. Yes. Yeah. So you were talking, it seems like on the second of these. Yeah. So in, in the modern period, we can think of it as Laplace's demon, right? If we know the starting conditions for all the matter in the universe, and we know the laws that will generate the changes in that matter over time, then at any point in the future, we can, with absolute epistemological certainty, give an account of the state of the universe. So in that sense, sort of the Laplace's demon kind of sense. But how is that actually epistemological since we're never in that position? Yeah, right. So doesn't that make that an impossible goal? In the early Enlightenment, I mean, that was sort of the goal of, that was the strong case, I guess, for having a truly scientific society is that they were mm-hmm. very excited about the fact that if you could come up with a complete description and you could come up with all the laws, then you could have a completely certain account of the state of the universe at any point past, present, or future. They were at least excited by the prospect of that. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the history of thermodynamics and statistical mechanics and the problem of quantum mechanics and then other forms of chaos theory, maybe a little bit, but just the problem of the non-determinism of even what appear to be deterministic laws. Right. This is still a philosophical problem in the philosophy of sciences. To what extent the various kinds of probabilities that are in a variety of theories actually go all the way down and violate something like Laplace's demon, or to what extent that Laplace's demon is a misextrapolation of even classical laws in that Mm -hmm. those classical laws have more subtlety and complexity to them such that you can't, even in a classical sense, get that kind of certainty. 
you could have had Athenians that basically had a confidence that there would be something like Laplace's demon, except it would just be named Apollo, right? And you just ask Apollo, okay, what's going to happen at this battle? And he knows, he has absolute certain knowledge of that, and he's going to tell you. But the point is that it kind of didn't matter. Like Cicero, a few years later, is going to talk about the Delphic Oracle and say, you know what, I don't believe this stuff, but I do these rites for what he calls political expediency. So you can think that's the political certainty. It's just like, okay, you know, like Mark said, blue, we picked blue. Now we can just stop arguing about this and make policy. And I am on board with that. So Cicero gets behind the sacred chickens and the lightning striking on the left and all that stuff, because it gets the Roman forum off the horns of the dilemma and gets them on toward making policy. And he's like, I'm going to stay agnostic about whether Jupiter is actually involved in this. But hey, it works. And so I'm for it. But isn't there, there sort of two sorts of problems. One would be the one that you're pointing out with Cicero, that you mm. go through these certain rites and you basically bracket the question of what the fact of the matter is. Mm. And you understand that at best, I'm being constrained into a kind of landscape here, but there's still a huge amount of judgment that's going to go on and all kinds of things that that constrained landscape isn't addressing. And so that's where politics and other sorts of judgment are going to come in. They always do, and that's okay. And so I'm just going to live with it. And then there's going to be a separate question of the way the authority itself is working regarding those facts of the matter. And so when you point to something like Laplace's demon, the reason why that would work is it gives authority to the scientific judgment that's being made. You say, well, somebody who knows science, because we know that if I extrapolate out all my physical theory, that I can always get the right prediction based upon the correct inputs, then what I need is someone who really knows how to do that. Then the authority of their judgment comes from the fact that you basically believe in that extrapolation like you would believe in Apollo. So, you know, you believe in Apollo, Apollo is going to give you the right information. That's where the authority comes from. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's a major problem we face now for interpreting scientific information. This is the crux of it. In the end, do we have a chance, we being non-scientists, right? Do we have a chance at understanding science well enough to be able to decide for ourselves if scientists are correct or not in these extrapolations? Is that possible? Or is it not possible? And so in the end, we take all pronouncements by scientists on faith because we don't have means of independently ascertaining the certainty of that knowledge that they're presenting. So there's always going to be an element of faith in them, just like faith in Apollo. Well, we need to qualify this conversation by saying that Dylan is in fact a scientist, and so he's not (laughs) qualified to speak about whether a layman... (laughs) Non-science, whether he can understand science or not. He is qualified to make that decision. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I want to quibble a little bit with that because one thing that in general science is pretty good at is in controversy sifting through multiple versions of facts of the matter such that over time you get some forms of convergence. So even though you might have some differences of opinion, there will be some basic convergence. So you see this with climate change, where it just becomes harder and harder to find scientists who will say, well, no, of course, climate change doesn't mean anything. You will find them. And earlier on in any of these kinds of controversial things, you'll find a much wider variety of opinions about it. A big part of that is people being convinced over time by considering the information themselves. Now, in this case, it would generally be other scientists being convinced, but scientists yell and argue with each other all the time. And when things are controversial, they don't 
have any qualms at all about telling somebody else that they're full of shit. They make no bones about it. There's nothing at stake for them in that. In fact, if anything, scientists in general are very conservative in this respect. They basically doubt anything that's different. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so that mechanism, which is admittedly a kind of cultural mechanism, a kind of ethos of science mechanism, maybe related to the spirit of science that Oppenheimer talks about, is part of long-term rhetoric of science. That kind of argumentation filters out some of these facts of the matter until you get, like I said, a kind of convergence. Absolutely. What you're talking about is usually called the Mertonian ethos because it was first described by Robert K. Merton. You can remember it with the acronym KUDOS, which is communism, not in the political sense, but later versions changed it communalism. But communism, meaning that all scientific knowledge is held in common in the scientific community, that nobody has ownership over any of the ideas. Universalism, which means that anything that is discovered should hold true in all cases. Disinterestedness, which means that if a scientist is behaving with a true ethos, they should not have some sort of venal interest in the success of their, you know, they're not getting paid to have a certain result. They shouldn't be financially or otherwise interested in their results, right? So that's disinterestedness. And then organized skepticism, which is kind of what you were just describing, was almost exactly organized skepticism. It's like, we have agreed as a community to be suspicious of any findings that seem, you know, outside of Two Sigma. We're going to interrogate those. So kudos is kind of describes the disciplinary ethos of scientists. And I would say that this first gets described and noticed in like the 1930s. And it still actually powerfully operates today, even though people have come back and found counter norms operating. So for every C-U-D-O-N-S in that little formula, there's actually a counter norm that operates in real life science. But nonetheless, this is a really powerful kind of normative structure on scientists. And I agree with you 100% everything that you said. But the difference is whether you're talking, scientists talking to each other and scientists talking to the public. For instance, since you brought up climate change, a friend of mine just decided she can't decide whether climate change is human caused or not. So she went on the internet to try to figure it out. And she said, <laughs> and she said that she can't tell the difference. And I should mention that she's actually a trained biological neuroscientist. She's a tech. She said she found papers for, she found papers against. They both had citations. They both had graphs. She said that she could find no independent way of determining who was right. The people who said that climate change was human caused and the people who said that climate change was not human caused. So this is what we're up against. I think you're absolutely right, Dylan, that science comes to consensus over time and that, and that knowledge becomes more solid and more reliable. 100% would never disagree with that. But this is a very different thing than trying to communicate scientific knowledge to people outside of that field. Isn't it also, you know, it's the same as when you're trying to figure out, does this philosopher have anything to say? When I try to read this, this is obviously steeped in a tradition that I don't fully understand. I haven't read, you know, this is especially the case with continental philosophy. Or someone could start reading your book and see a lot of strange mm -hmm. conventions <laughs> and, you know, not be familiar with the history of rhetoric and say, what is this? Why isn't there any sort of focus on the fact that prophets in the past are full of shit mm -hmm. and scientists in the present are using a scientific method that has some relation to truth? Mm -hmm. Why is that not emphasized at all? Mm -hmm. Instead, you're focusing on this. You know. So we use, in addition to the consensus, you know, we see, well, how many scientists? <laughs> well, maybe I'm not just having one advisor that I have to take on faith, but I can ask multiple ones. I can look in multiple sources. But then, as you say, on the internet, you might see just as many for or against, or you could count them up. But then right, we look at the pedigree. Are these people that are saying one side or the other, what universities are they associated with? Basically, how well respected are those organizations? Or is it just some dude on the internet who's self-taught? Something like that. That actually takes some specialized knowledge, too, to figure that out. I know that for those of us who are involved at all with academia or the sciences, this seems just kind of a no-brainer. It's just like, oh, yeah, okay. 
University of Auckland, no problem. Heartland Institute, big question mark. But there are a lot of people that don't even have that sort of specialized knowledge for being able to filter out. When my friend told me that she had no independent means of assessing the validity of these two arguments, that's what she meant. She couldn't judge them by institutions. She couldn't judge them by universities. She couldn't judge them by whose lab they worked in, what journals they published in, because she doesn't have any of the specialized knowledge to make that decision. Yeah. And I, I think that's even more so with something like philosophy when the standards are not so clear themselves. And even at a given university, you could have faculty members that think each other's work is just entirely full of crap right. or not philosophy at all. You know, we have an interesting nether region that we're good enough to get into grad school, mm-hmm. but yet we're not accredited professors at a place that you would pay money to go right now. So what does that mean? I, you know, so we have lots of listeners that like, well, they're entertaining, but I, are they ultimately full of crap or not? I, I don't know. So sort of the more, the more big time guests we have on here that will deign to talk to us, the more credibility we get, you know, man, you guys have a rough philosophers are mean to each other. Rhetoricians were all nice to each other. <laughs> this also reminds me of being a patient and getting advice from a doctor and you have a diagnosis, but multiple possible therapies mm-hmm. and you're given the choice. Okay. So you could do X, forgive me because I know more about prostate cancer (laughs) than I know about other kinds of cancer. So, you could get the seeds and they have these kinds of side effects and this kind of probability of treatment or you could try this experimental hormonal therapy or you could get radiation or you could get external beam radiation and you could pick another kind of disease or another kind of condition in which there are multiple forms of treatment that have complicated conditions for their efficacy and you might say, well, okay, so the good doctor will lay all those options out for you and then say, go ahead and pick. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that most people are going to feel like your friend does, which is like, I have no clue how to pick. And I basically feel like I'm going to just roll the dice no matter what I do. Yeah. What's the cheapest? What does my insurance cover? The landscape of choice gets reduced by things like that. And part of the reason why it's a good idea and why doctors would say that I ought to be presenting the information this way, and I basically agree with it, is that some people will say, well, I want to really want to be certain that I'm going to get rid of the cancer. And other people would say, well, I want to maximize the likelihood of my having a my lifestyle. Or they have different criteria different values for what they want of how to rank the outcomes. And that's Mm -hmm. part of the reason why you would give them those choices. But Mm -hmm. it sounds a lot like that, that part of this rhetorical problem is something like knowing the science, being able to judge the facts of the matter. Mm -hmm. And then there's also judging the consequences. So, as you point out in your book, you did this very nicely in the precog, and pointing out the is-ought problem of saying that there's always a value judgment that's involved when you say, get all up in arms about the fact that we're in the middle of a great mass extinction of species. Not that there's anything wrong with that. (laughs) Yes. That's Mark's values right there, yeah. Exactly. So then the question is, you know, if you're all up in arms about mass extinction and you're going to go to the mat over every kind of species that you could possibly make a difference with not extinguishing, then you have in there a subtle or not so subtle value judgment about the preservation of species. And that may actually be complicated. It may be that you think every species has its own reason for being. It might be that you think biodiversity is fundamental to the flourishing of all sorts of species, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So, I guess that's a long way to getting around to, we haven't talked about the is-ought divide 
in this respect. So Yeah, you know, it's perfect. It actually circles right back to what we've been talking about so far, and that's uncertainty. Tom Goodnight defined rhetoric as uncertainty management. So I give you my definition of rhetoric in the precog, and this is Tom Goodnight's definition of rhetoric is the act of management of uncertainty. And that's what rhetoric does. So Jim Hansen used to say about climate change debates, we're going to need to act before we know all the facts, right? Given that that's always our situation, we are going to need to decide something like your example of the pancreatic cancer. You're going to have to pick before you have all the facts about which treatment is going to work the best. Given that, rhetoric is the technology that we use to make this decision in the face of uncertainty, right? And so there's a bunch of people who do decision theory. And I know that at least one dominant way to do decision theory is to break it into uncertainty and risk. So uncertainty is exactly like you were saying, Dylan, the probabilities that we were assigned to each of these treatments for the pancreatic cancer. Risk is the value, the utility that you would assign to each of those outcomes. That's where this is the is ought, right? So the probabilities are the is and the ought are the values we assign those things. Like, do you want to be absolutely certain you've killed the cancer? That's one utility or value that you would assign there. Do you want to have it be affordable for your insurance? That's another utility or value you would assign. Do you want it to not be painful? That might be another value that you would assign, right? So when these folks do decision theory, they break it down into uncertainty and risk. And that's kind of roughly breaks down to what we've been talking about or what I talked about in the precog with the is ought. And you need to put those two things together. They need to come together in order to make a decision. And that's what rhetoric does. And what kind of cancer did Oppenheimer die of? Uh, lung, lung cancer. Yeah. He, he Unsurprisingly, he's yeah. a lifelong smoker. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All those guys were... This is starting to get into the meat of what I find really fascinating about this. And is the isot distinction really relevant around the most interesting questions? So to me, political decisions are either identical with or some kind of a subset of ethical decisions. And there are many circumstances where, just like you say, you're balancing off different values or different desired outcomes, or in some cases, you're choosing a path between two things, neither of which is unequivocally good. And in the modern world, much more so, the questions that we're debating are questions that revolve around probabilities more so than binary, true-false kinds of questions, if such things even ever existed. Right. Yeah. If they ever existed. I suppose if you had like a woolly mammoth, like heading straight toward your camp, it was like, you know, that was pretty clear cut. There is a certain amount of certainty and perhaps even a binary kind of certainty that comes with the adoption of a very strong value framework. Like mm -hmm. there's a bunch of different examples I'm sure we could use, but you know, if... Use one with Nazis. I was going to say fascism. <laughs> You're talking about fascism, right? I mean, no, that's like a... <laughs> no, I, I, no, we're not going there. Mark's yanking Seth's chain. <laughs> but let's just say this. If your value system dictates that homosexuality is a choice, then you can make a value judgment based on a binary interpretation of a fact around whether you want to allow somebody to be a member of your community based on their sexual preference. But on one hand, you're hearing some kind of value system that dictates that. And on the other hand, you're a human being that has even the tiniest grain of compassion or empathy. Then you have to be like, okay, well, there's something not quite right. And then you get into this area where it becomes hard to decide. That might be an example of two value systems coming in conflict as opposed to the climate change where there's a fact of the matter that can't quite be decided. And maybe I'm confusing myself here, but I think those are two critical challenges which I think are illuminated by your model, not necessarily in contradiction to what you're putting forth, but that where value systems come in conflict, where the polity doesn't have 
a consensus. That's one problem. Mm -hmm. That's the political uncertainty, I guess, in some sense. And then there's the epistemological uncertainty where we can't or we don't have the ability currently to determine the facts of the matter, you know, is a separate question of whether the fact of the matter would give rise to some kind of a value judgment to begin with. Right. Seth, wouldn't the examples that you're giving actually point towards the fluidity of facts of the matter and even point to the facts of the matter maybe being political in themselves? The strongest reasons why people argue against climate change, it seems to me, have to do with not liking the economic consequences of dealing with climate change. Mm -hmm. So, it becomes a political and economic argument that in order to thwart moves that would cause economic harm to your business or your constituents' lives, you undermine the argument for making them. So, you say, well, climate change is just fake. So, we certainly don't need to be getting our undies in a bunch about carbon in the atmosphere burning coal because it's just part of the regular ebb and flow and cycle and the science is for crap. And so, let's just not make any rash policy judgments about this. And so, uh -huh. there, it seems like you would easily go just say, well, look, the facts of the matter are at odds because the facts of the matter are always value-laden. Right. You seem to be pointing out this difference between philosophy and rhetoric, that in philosophy, we look at a sentence and we try to figure out, is this true? Is it justified? Maybe we might have to look at what did the writer mean by the sentence, but we don't generally consider how do people generally take the sentence or in a particular historical context, how did people interpret the sentence? Whereas that rhetoric adds that as a key element that a message in a particular text or a particular person's head is not politically efficacious. It's only efficacious as it is batted around and taken in certain ways by certain audiences. So that you might, as a philosopher, just insist, well, of course, there's a difference between facts and values. So, for instance, I could do some research that says the IQs of white people are higher than the IQs of black people, but I don't mean any values out of that. I'm just <laughs> pointing out a fact that I can then turn over to you. But anybody who's not politically naive will see, no, the bell the, you have to look at it rhetorically and say, you know, that this, this will be heard in a stasis higher than it was intended, right? As, as being about what you should do, how you should treat people and not just about what the facts right. are and that you need to do your research sort of with that in mind. I don't disagree with what either one of you are saying. I think what I was trying to do was say that, so let's take your, what is the classical analytic propositional statement? The cat is on the mat, right? When you're talking about the concept of is the proposition P true or not? Like, does it accord with the facts of the world and whatever? You're not having a fact value discussion. You're having a proposition and truth of the proposition, right? Or some sort of verification mm -hmm. or validation kind of conversation. When in philosophy, you start talking about ethics, what Linda's proposing is that the purpose of the prophetic ethos in this context is to, if not bridge the gap between facts and values, it's to create a stage where some sort of value-driven decision can be made based on some kind of knowledge, aka a fact, right? Whereas in philosophy, we talk about is-ought when we talk about ethics, when we say very explicitly and in very naive cases, like, well, this is the facts, this is the way the world is structured. Does that have implications for the way we should act? And I want to draw an analogy between those things. And at the same time, the way in which we talk about them is quite different. 
and not just because we're using the term prophetic and we're talking about something like reason, but we theoretically use the term certainty, but in reality, I should say in philosophy, it's not so much certainty as it is truth, which is a different metric or a different mm-hmm. baseline for having the conversation. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what I was so interested in talking to you guys about, the differences between rhetoric and philosophy and how they might help each other out. But you're absolutely right. The key to rhetoric is the idea of kairos, which is a Greek word that just means opening. But what it really means is we don't talk about something unless there's a reason. It's sort of like kairos is sort of the itch to speak up. So we don't discuss facts for fun unless we're philosophers, I guess. And generally speaking, if we're going to discuss scientific facts about anything, it's because we have a crisis on our hands. And this is what rhetoricians point out, is that we don't usually discuss science, we usually don't discuss facts at all, unless we're in crisis. And then you have to take into account the crisis that's going on and the need for certainty and the need for action, the need for resolution. You have to take that into account when you're thinking about the meaning of the facts that are being discussed. Sometimes we go out to seek facts based on crisis, right? And then, gosh, it's really hard to argue that there's no values being involved in that search for facts. So like you use the example of public debates about homosexuality stuff. And I think that's a perfect example where you can see different organizations go and do surveys. Like the one that just always amazes me is that they do lots and lots of studies of kids raised by gay couples. And depending on who's doing the research, they always find out something different. If it's an organization that's supportive of gay families, then they find out that the kids are actually quite healthy and well-balanced. If it's an organization that's critical of gay marriage, they'll find that the kids have higher risk of depression and higher risk of suicide. So at that point, you have groups doing what's called research, and they're coming up with completely contradictory facts that align with their value systems. And for the average person who stands outside of this process and lacks independent means to sort it out, it's kind of hard to know how to come to certainty in a debate like that. So values enter into the process in a couple of different ways is what I guess I'm saying. They enter into the process because I don't think we ever discuss facts unless we have some sort of itch, some need to. And secondly, often those facts are the result of a value-laden, value-freighted search for epistemological certainty in an issue. I like that you connected this homosexuality issue to crisis because (laughs) there's no obvious crisis there in the way that there is in this talk about the bomb and you know what are the implications of the atomic bomb or what are the implications of the use of pesticides the examples that you use in your book of kairos of crisis are actual events that we would consider crisis but the ongoing view of homosexuality is just if it's an event it's a political event a comparable one would be arguments about evolution or just anything that would really knock down religion at all, that these are ongoing. There's not a point of crisis that there's going to be rioting in the streets if we don't decide this pseudo-religious issue about the origins of the universe or of, of human beings, but just intellectual trends. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting, though. There was no crisis about pesticides either before Rachel Carson. That was something that was a practice that was ongoing. People had accepted And she was the one who went around and found all those individual unconnected voices who were struggling with the effects of pesticides. And she brought those together and she helped manufacture a crisis in that case. So I think we've seen people manufacture a crisis with homosexuality too, right? Like you said, where's the crisis? Absolutely true. But there have been groups of people who have gone around and found individual struggles that people have had on both sides, right? People who are advocates of gay marriage have gone around and found Mm -hmm. couples who have been disadvantaged by not being able to marry, right? And then people who are against it have gone around and found various examples of how it's breaking down the family or, or structures. And they have focused these and brought them to a point and created a crisis. 
So the crisis can be any really pre-existent social ill that is finally being brought to light. You wouldn't consider slavery throughout its whole history. Is that a crisis? Just the notion of crisis itself sounds like it has to be something short term. Yeah. So let me distinguish crisis from kairos because they're not exactly the same thing. Crisis comes from the ancient Greek word, which means judgment. So it's basically crisis is a situation where we feel like we have to make a decision Kairos is a situation which we feel that we have to speak up. So Kairos is specifically a problem that we think speech will solve. So there was a Kairos with homosexuality in that they were oppressed and underground for years and years and years. It is only now a crisis for those opposed now that gays have finally getting more social acceptance to the people that then think, oh, my God, the country is heading for Armageddon because of this. And these things lead to each other, right? One right on the other. So you had a number of gay people who felt oppressed and that was an itch to speak up. That was a Cairo. So they spoke up and made themselves known. And that then led to a crisis of judgment for people who had moral systems that either aligned or didn't align with that. They're like, oh, now I have to make up my mind about this now that it's on the open and now that we're talking about it. Now I feel like I have to make my mind up about it. And then that leads to another Kairos, which we feel like we need to say something about it. So these things kind of feed back on each other. Well, one thing that the way you were talking about the problem of multiple voices and multiple conclusions out of science, well, I guess it's one of the reasons why I wanted to study science when I was an undergrad and started I started in political philosophy and sort of why I kept on doing it is learning a little bit and maybe from the inside about how scientific authority works. The ethos of science, I think, in general, has an answer to the question of what to do about competing or conflicting studies and conflicting facts of the matter. And it amounts to, on the one hand, an evaluation of the studies themselves and a kind of judgment of whether or not the work done was robust or rigorous enough. That is, a judgment about weighing that particular fact. And then there would be in the remnant conflict, the offset word in scientific circles that there might just be more research that needs to be done. That is, there might just not be a good complete answer that the landscape might be constrained, but you might just not know enough to make a distinction between the two options. And the way this bears on what we've been talking about is the authority of science socially is so high that Regardless of whether you have a good study or not, people try on any side of any issue to understand the rhetorical power of science as an authority. And so they make sure they have a study or an expert that will argue their point of view, regardless of what the facts of the matter are, because it's rhetorically powerful. Mm -hmm. There is mechanisms within science to try to ferret that out, but they all depend upon the people participating in it being partners in that ethos rather than what usually happens is that the people who are leveraging that scientific ethos for its authority, they actually don't care about scientific ethos. They care about the authority of science and its rhetorical power. That's good that you make the distinction between authority and ethos. Um, They're related concepts, but they're not the same thing. And so ethos is more complex like we've been talking about. It has all of these factors that impinge on it. It has not only what scientists say about their research, but it has expectations for how scientists behave in public. It has that kind of force of urgency, the moments when we come to consult scientists. All of that is kind of folded into the ethos of scientists. Authority is one part of that. They're certainly related concepts, not coextensive. Hmm. 
I kind of lost the thread of that while you were talking, because when you first were talking about the authority of science, I was thinking about how scientific authority has now come under attack. So the reason I asked the question earlier about whether it has to do with knowledge or privileged access is that in the Judaic tradition, prophets, they don't necessarily have access to special knowledge. They just have a privileged relationship to the divine. How is that different? Well, you can have non-rational experiences that can't really be called special knowledge, but you maybe had an experience. Uh, For instance, a really good example is possession. So you would have some of these ancient prophets actually be possessed by the divine and they would, you know, speak for, you know, the word prophet actually means speaking for. And so some of these people would speak for the divine, but you couldn't really say that they even maybe had knowledge of their actions. So I think there is probably a, a productive distinction to be made there. And to the extent that we've laid out through the course of this discussion, the notion of the scientist as an expert. It's not just that they have some kind of privileged access to experiential knowledge, but that they're trained. There's a level of education and and expertise and knowledge in a specific area, a form of understanding that in theory, the layperson could achieve. Mm -hmm. Hence, you would have a program, for example, You mentioned this at the end of your book, Linda, about how one strategy for bridging the gap is to improve scientific education, that if people understood science better, they would be able to act more appropriately or with better judgment about scientific decisions. But if what the prophet has is just some privileged access to the divine, then there's really nothing to aspire to as a layperson. I only bring this up because I think that that notion of privileged access or privileged experience translates to how I see certain other kinds of groups starting to become venerated in our society today. So, for example, there's a kind of a cult of the entrepreneur. If there was ever a platform for prophetic speech, then TEDx is it. (laughs) Yep. Let me give you my insight that I had because I had a stroke. I have access to some kind of knowledge or experience that you, I get 15 minutes to convince you, right, that all people are connected or uh, that mm-hmm. we should stop sending kids to school because, you know, hey, I didn't go to school and I started a company. So therefore, I have authority. You performed a miracle of transforming a business in your garage to a, a multinational That's corporation. Right. So there. That's right. <laughs> the miracle. Yep. We won't figure out the denominator of that, right? Of the number of people that tried to do that and failed. Well, <laughs> right. Exactly. And it's a question of exceptionalism. Yeah. So Linda sent me her book quite some time ago and I started reading it. And I remember having a conversation where I, I said, it feels to me like economists are the new scientists that to the extent that economists play the role of being advisors to politicians, of being authorities, of having access to some privileged knowledge. And to the extent that any kind of mathematical economics is really no different than doing climate modeling. It's really the same exercise. There's that part of it where you have something like a scientist or an economist that plays a role. And then you have these other sorts of profits that are coming into the political discourse about, yeah, we should stop funding public schools because we're teaching the wrong things. And the conversation that we have around that subject is fundamentally changed by the insertion of this prophetic rhetoric into the discussion versus the traditional discourse that we have around it about citizenship and duties and the healthy political body and so forth. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually, in the book, I oppose expert ethos to prophetic ethos. 
So for better or for worse, I say that those are two different things. And when a scientist is being prophetic, he or she is not being an expert and vice versa. Those are mutually exclusive roles. I see them as basically they turn on that that pin that you mentioned of exceptionalism. So if you're presenting what you're saying as not accessible to the people you're talking to, that's prophecy. But if you're presenting what you're saying as conceivably accessible by the people that you're talking to, okay, albeit with several years of specialized education, then that's expert ethos. Paul Krugman often performs prophetic ethos, I think. He just does this kind of like, trust me, I'm Paul Krugman. He doesn't present his arguments as in, here are the data I'm crunching, and here's how I got there, and here's how you can kind of follow my train of thought, right? And I don't know a lot of other economists really well. So I, the expert ethos I'm more used to are engineers, like traffic engineers. So I go to meetings in my neighborhood about whether to put a roundabout in by the local elementary school. And <laughs> you are talking to the right people. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, I, I go to these things and, you know, people get very worked up, first of all, which is surprising to me. It's a freaking roundabout people. But expert ethos there is performed by the traffic engineers who say, we counted the number of kids who crossed the street and here's what we found out. And we put down our cables and we measured the number of cars that went by and here's what we found out, right? That's expert ethos. They present their data. It's not clandestine. It's not arcane. It's something that conceivably you can kind of grasp the structure of. But, you know, prophetic ethos is very different. It just says you don't have access to any of this stuff and you need to trust me because I'm the expert. The problem, I think, is when we get into things like climate change or we get into wicked problems because then these methods are almost always projective. And so now we're way out in the realm of uncertainty. And so really, there's a lot more trust that has to be there because the average layperson may be able to understand the number of cars that drives over a wire. They're not going to be able to understand parameterizing in a GCM climate model. So I think this is where we end up with just getting stuck with prophetic ethos a lot is in these wicked problems like climate change. But I think in a lot of our everyday discussions that we have, you know, in our communities about water or schools or whatever... We see scientists perform expert ethos all the time, and that's a different thing, and it operates completely differently. It seemed some of the examples of prophetic ethos you gave in the book, like Seth was describing, some of the Jewish prophets were not necessarily explicitly channeling, relating an experience or relating special knowledge. I was brought to mind the whole Jonah, just repent citizens, pretty much just as you describe in the book, it's a call to covenant values. And Yes, you could say, you know, that person has distinguished themselves by being weird, by being ascetic, Mm -hmm. you know, looking like God has talked to them or claiming that God has talked to them. Mm -hmm. But whether or not any of this is happening or not as a role, it's just someone who's accepted as being in touch and bringing the audience in touch with these covenant values. So it could just be the people on TV all the time who are, you know, exhorting us to be moral, to go back to the olden days, to have respect in a way that they don't see now. And even the calls that we need to do something politically or there are going to be disastrous consequences environmentally, blah, blah, blah. I don't necessarily hear the people who are trying to talk prophetically necessarily bringing in secret scientific knowledge that they are familiar with that we aren't. In fact, it's the easiest thing in the world for somebody to be convinced by an environmental cause and to take up a prophetic stance and proselytize to everyone they meet about how you should recycle or you should do this or that because the world is falling to shit. And they really think that it's obvious enough that the world is falling to shit that you don't have to know science to see. I mean, we had that on the show with uh, David Brin and then with Fritjof Bergman with a different version of that before. None of these guys were referring to their secret knowledge. They're trying to call your attention to facts that are available to all of us. 
They're calling attention to their own, not original, but interpretation of facts that are all around you. Is that not prophetic? Even if they're taking a prophetic fire and brimstone tone? Yeah, absolutely, they are. But I would still argue that they are hooked up to that special source of charisma, whatever that is. And maybe we just need to think about a little bit of what that would be. But I don't think we really listen to people that we think don't have some sort of special connection or some sort of special experience or some sort of special knowledge. I mean, yeah, people rant and rave. I'm not going to change my behavior or my mind based on what they say. People have to have a certain amount of authority before I'm going to say, ooh, yeah, you're right. I'm going to start recycling right now. And a crazy guy raving at me on the street corner is probably not going to do it. Well, that does call attention if, if it wasn't clear to folks already that, again, a prophet is not just somebody who's acting in a certain way. This is a rhetorical analysis. So we're talking not just about how the person is acting, but how they are received by society, mm-hmm. right? It's the social role that they are playing. So no matter how much like a prophet you try to act, you're not a prophet unless people believe you. Yeah, that's right. And the uh, key part of that is in the ancient tradition and pretty much all the way along is that if people were just raving and no one could understand them at all, they weren't necessarily considered to be a prophet. There has to be some element of recognition and the audience is just like, oh, yeah, I recognize that sounds like that word or clearly he's leaning toward the red vase instead of the blue vase. And there has to be active recognition on the part of the audience for it to be recognized as a prophetic act. Otherwise, it's just, you know, crazy town. There's an interesting analysis of Bill Nye versus Neil deGrasse Tyson to be had in all of this, I think. Oh, yeah. Let's hear it. I don't have it. I'm just saying. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> well, the, let's do it. Let's build it well, right now. Neil deGrasse Tyson has very much embraced the notion of being a public figure, and he's celebrated in many corners right now. He's the new Carl Sagan on the Cosmos thing, but he oftentimes makes pronouncements which are not received by everybody. He's very opinionated. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bill Nye, who is much less self-aggrandizing and in a weird way sets himself off with his odd sartorial choices, but is in the trenches going on the shows where all the deniers and the skeptics are, not sitting on panels. Neil deGrasse Tyson likes to go to panels with other scientists and have moderately contentious, but ultimately safe conversations. And Bill Nye is throwing himself into the breach. So I don't know which one, if either, is more effective at rallying people to the cause or if either one of them is actually prophesying to the larger audience or just simply confirming the biases of the converted. Bill Nye, who is, to me, a beloved science educator, kids science program guy, he agreed to debate. uh, What was his name? Ken Ham. He's the head of the Creation Institute. Yeah. So he's like one of the founders or the intellectual... I use that word in quotes, forces behind the creationist museum or whatever, explaining how dinosaurs didn't actually exist or... The Flintstones is real. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. Right. So I think Ham had a challenge out to debate anybody about this kind of thing. And Bill Nye took him up. And Bill Nye failed miserably, mainly because he needs rhetorical training. (laughs) He got mopped on the floor by... Ham, not because he was wrong, but because he just wasn't very good at understanding his audience and about how to have that kind of knockdown, drag out, bloody fisted argument. And maybe it's political training or rhetorical training. I don't know what it is, but it was not pretty. Yeah. So maybe say something about the evolution of rhetorical in the way that Dylan is talking about it, which as far as I know, is even how Aristotle largely talked about it and certainly how Plato talked about it, which is just skill in putting together a point. 
what you were talking about, dealing with uncertainty, as if rhetoric is not just about giving you pointers on how to be more concise in your speech tomorrow, but in something much larger. Yeah, sophists were, were mere rhetoricians, right? And from point of view of philosophy, that was a damning criticism of them, that mm-hmm. they would teach people how to speak well in courts of law so as to get themselves off of charges. And in fact, one of the Platonic Dialogues, the Sophist, is all about this problem of just being able to talk good talk, but not have anything to do with the truth of the matter. So, that's the way I was using the word rhetoric. (laughs) There's that notion of truth again. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Empty rhetoric or mere rhetoric, right? Yes. Um, the way you're using it is actually not, I don't think, a very accurate definition. And when you were talking about Bill Nye, you were using it, I think, in a way that would be acceptable to most rhetoricians now. And that is, and it's very Aristotelian, right? Analyzing the available means of persuasion. So here he was in that situation in front of that audience. And he had some options for how to present himself. He chose some of them. He went with them. And then you can judge sort of the... the I watched that debate and, and I agree with you, Dylan. The debate happened at the Creation Museum. And he was making these jokes about the speed of light. And they were just literally like they were going over people's heads. No pun intended. Like he was like, you know, hey, some of you in the back look a little younger to me. And everyone yeah. in the, and they, and the camera shows the audience and it's just stone face <laughs> yes. like, across like no. not a single person in the room got that joke. <laughs> Bill Nye was very rhetorically savvy in that debate in one particular way. And that was in his argument analysis. So in his ability to take apart the arguments that Ham was making and expose the warrants, which are the hidden, we've been talking a lot about values, and the warrant is the hidden value that kind of holds an argument together. And what he essentially said, especially this is very obvious in the section on carbon dating, when they were arguing about carbon dating, Pam said, well, you know, the Bible says this, and so, you know, it has to be true. And Nye said, well, look, you and I have a fundamental disagreement about this value. You believe this book is the ultimate authority, and you warrant all your arguments based on this book. I do not believe that that book is the ultimate authority. I do not warrant my arguments on this book. I warrant my arguments on scientific evidence. And so you and I are never going to make any progress on these points. If you know, we don't agree on these warrants, and so we will never accept each other's arguments. And so that was a very astute piece of rhetorical analysis that Bill Nye did at that moment. Now let's talk about the sophists, right? So if you want to, as Gorgias would say, if you want to drug your audience, right? If you want them all eating off a spoon for you, Bill Nye failed, I think, miserably, at least based on the doer faces in that audience at the Creation Museum. But in terms of sort of his Aristotelian rhetoric, he was pretty on top of his game, at least for parts of that debate. Well, but the point I would make about the carbon dating exchange is that you're right. He's pointing out that there's a different set of uh, warrants going on, but he's not articulating how the scientific ethos would judge carbon dating to be valid in certain regions of time and not. Mm-hmm. He made no effort to make that warrant more palatable to his audience. That's true. Like, and it's called backing. If you're in a situation where you don't agree on warrants, you are supposed to try to make an effort to get your audience to accept your warrants that you can come to some sort of common ground. And he didn't do that. Yeah, especially when creationists like Ham, what they do is rhetorically very sly, which is they claim to be using science as an authority. They appeal to science because they understand that it's acting as an authority to undermine the claims of science itself. They leverage that ethos in order to promote a certain value argument. And where Nye failed was in articulating that. Yeah, they go one step further, the creationists do. Not only do they rely on the authority of science and then kind of turn it toward their own purposes, but they actually use scientific studies. And then they make this really interesting, basically an overgeneralization. They make this sort of move from it. So for instance, they'll say, and you know, I actually saw Ken Ham speak in the early 90s. 
he came around on part of like an intelligent design roadshow or something. And I actually, I, I went and actually heard him and he was really ingenious in the way he was using scientific studies. So he would go into the details. He would say, okay, for example, petrified forest. Everybody believes this is a forest that was sort of fossilized in place. But hey, look, there's this known geologist, and this is, you know, it's not a geologist associated with the Creation Institute or anything. It's just a regular geologist from a regular university. Went in there and found out these petrified trees don't have any root systems. So in fact, there was a catastrophic event, a uh, lahar or flood or uh, volcanic eruption. These trees were all knocked loose, deposited, end up in this area because of the way they would float in a lake. And the scientific study actually compared it to what was happening at Spirit Lake after the eruption of Mount St. Helens, right? So these logs float, they get waterlogged, they tip on their ends, they get buried in ash. And so it appears that they were fossilized in place over millions of years. In fact, it was a catastrophic event that put these logs the way they are. And therefore, and this is the move, it is possible that the earth was created in 10,000 years instead of 4 billion years. So you have completely legitimate science. And then you have this conclusion that's essentially like a slippery slope. It just extrapolates far, far beyond what scientists would accept. But they're sort of glued together very rapidly, very smoothly, moving from one to the other. So not only is he relying on the authority of science, but he's using science in this very specific sort of slippery rhetorical way. You know, since you've brought up the issue with religion and how religion... So historically, you trace this chain between the ancient prophets to the modern scientists. But of course, much as there might be a commonality in terms of their political position as science advisors, now we have a very clear disagreement, as you were just laying out, not only between, of course, opposing scientists who each want to be the prophet, but between scientific prophets and plain old prophets, you know, religious prophets. I like the point you, you drew in connection to this. It was actually in the chapter about Stephen Jay yeah, Gould mm -hmm. and Carl Sagan about the non-overlapping magisteria. Mm -hmm. You've got this distinction that we've already talked about between the facts as you lay them out and then, well, what do you do based on the facts? And that seemingly late in his career, Stephen Jay Gould, after arguing very much, according to your analysis, in the prophetic mode, in the progressive, not only just you know, I'm just laying out indifferent facts, but actually putting forward some pretty aggressive recommendations for how your view should change, what should be done in light of the things that he was arguing, but then seemed late in his career to be retracting somewhat in reaction to he's focused on evolutionary theory. And because of all the complaints against him by creationists, because of the ongoing conflict, then he ended up trying to draw a hard and fast line between, well, you know, there's the things that science tells us. And then there's the conclusions about sort of the larger philosophical picture that you might draw beyond that. And no science will ever tell you what to do with those. Mm -hmm. And those specifically, the line is very easy to draw in the place of is versus are. Yeah. And I was relying pretty heavily on David Prindle's interpretation of Gould's later years there. But certainly just looking at his rhetoric, you can see it. He moved definitely from a progressive model where he was pushing a quasi-revolutionary, definitely democratic model of political engagement to a model in which he was like, okay, <laughs> you crazy creationist people stay on that side of the line. And we scientists will stay on this side of the line. And let's just agree to disagree. Because I think what he saw was that when he would engage, which he did, he testified at some, you know, really high profile court cases on school boards trying to get intelligent design to be taught in the school alongside evolution, right? So he, he testified in these high profile cases. And what he found is that every argument he made to try to argue for science as a basis for more democratic values got turned around and used against him by the people he was debating. And so he found when he opened that door between the is and the ought, there was backwash through that door and he didn't really like it. So suddenly you had people from the political 
political realm saying, well, we need to have more control over how science is done and taught. And I think at that point, Stephen Jay Gould was like, whoop, you know what, not such a good idea. I thought maybe we could all kind of get along and move together toward this progressive future I had in mind. But it appears that perhaps the political ground is not quite right for that. And uh, maybe we, you should leave us alone in our labs and we'll leave you alone in your churches and let's just move ahead. This is a common liberal problem, right? You have the same problem with tolerance. We say, well, we should be tolerant of people's religious views, yada, yada, yada. And then they have a problem condemning behaviors of religious extremists. They'll find themselves put into a corner of supporting deeply misogynistic religious traditions that subjugate women and girls under the rubric of tolerance. That is often the conservative criticism of liberalism is that they don't stand on the is divide properly. And it seems to me that Gould is running into exactly that problem. He wants to allow for some flexibility but make an argument and then they're not convinced. Then he's left like, well, okay, well, let's just agree to disagree. Yeah. You know, I should say, I don't really think, and especially in engaging the notion of prophecy and engaging the notion of science, as Mark was just referring to, I don't really see an opposition between religion and science. And I'm not going from here into some hippy-dippy thing about how they're both windows on the same world, like Freeman Dyson would say or whatever. I'm more in Bruno Latour's school on this, which he says that we fundamentally misunderstood what religion does and what science does. And that in fact, these things aren't, they're not opposing epistemological traditions. They just, they're two modes that literally have nothing to do with each other. And that we've brought them into opposition through political argument, but it's based on what Latour believes to be a series of fallacious arguments. So in a nutshell, it's hard to describe. This is from his new book, Modes of Existence. He said, people have commonly misunderstood that science and religion think that they do kind of two halves of the same thing. They think that religion talks about things way out there and science talks about things right here. He said, in that way, they've been put into opposition with each other, the out there and the right here. And he said, that's actually not what they do at all. He says that science actually is all about trying to bring us closer and closer and closer to things that are beyond our reach. We're trying to see something that can't be seen, a particle, an atom, a law of physics, right? We're trying to grasp something that can't be grasped, see something that can't be seen. What science does is make all of these inscriptions that fill in the gap and try and try and try to get closer and closer to it, almost like the Tower of Babel, but never quite ever get there. Religion, on the other hand, is about presence. It's about having an experience. He compares it to love. And he says, religion is about having an experience a presence with the divine or presence with another human being. And that's what religion does. It, it brings us into a moment of identity and absolute presence where nothing is intervening between us and God or us and each other. So he said, when you look at it like this, that science's job is to fill in this gap between us and this thing that can't be grasped with inscriptions. And then religion's job is to bring us into this sort of love relationship he said, those things are not really opposed to each other. They're actually completely different activities. And I have to say, I'm kind of in his school. So I understand why Gould made the kind of opposition he did with Noma. I understand why people make this opposition between religion on the outside, science on the inside. But I don't really subscribe to that. Now, I'm wondering if Latour's theory there and your advocacy of it is a rhetorical analysis itself. You know, when I when I think about, well, how would I prove that that is a good model of religion or a good model of science? Well, it would take a lot of looking at different examples and cogitating. It involves the same kind of argumentation that you give in your own book mm -hmm. for why prophecy has parallels to scientific advisors. We were talking about, well, why are uh, rhetoricians so nice to each other compared to philosophers? Well, because it seems like the way that you were talking, even just from the very beginning of the conversation about the roles, you know, the ethos as roles is it's like you're examining life, examining society as if you were examining a work of literature. 
And though you could imagine different literary critics who take different interpretive stances as being very uh, petulant and hostile toward each other, and how could you do a, a Lacan? You know, actually, we did an episode of Lacan versus Derrida doing analyses of the same Edgar Allan Poe short story. Oh yeah, story. the purloined letter. Yep. Yes. And Derrida was certainly not very nice to Lacan about mm-hmm. that. Maybe that's because he's not a retro. Well, I don't know what the hell Derrida is. I shouldn't even say any more about that. But one at least has the picture of there are many possible good interpretations when you're doing that kind of analysis. But that's something very different than what the philosopher typically, at least classical philosophers, thought themselves to be doing. Mm -hmm. They're not just doing some sort of pseudo-literary analysis on the world itself. They're actually getting a truth. Mm -hmm. They were doing Mm -hmm. so that, you know, the types of philosophy like Latour, he's considered a philosopher, right? He's declared himself a philosopher relatively recently. Or, and this is the same problem I just had with Derrida. Is is he a philosopher? Is he a charlatan? Is he something else? What? He's a terrible writer. (laughs) (laughs) Certain strains of contemporary philosophy really have given up on this classical view of philosophy as seeking truth Mm -hmm. and see that all that philosophy, a non-pretentious philosophy can be doing is what you describe and exemplify in your book that rhetoric is doing. Yes. This sort of analysis. If you guys could see me sitting at my desk, I would have my hand raised indicating agreement with that. So the difference Mark just brought up between philosophy and rhetoric, this is perfect. This is right where I want to go. There is a a possible relationship that we could now articulate between these two activities, between philosophy and rhetoric, where we would say that, yes, philosophy is after truth, capital or little t, right? But rhetoric is about the transformation of individuals. So once you have discovered the truth, rhetoric is about how you motivate people to live toward that truth or to live more in line with that truth. All right. Hmm. So philosophy is about the ideal and rhetoric is about the real in that case. I got to say that every time we have a conversation about rhetoric, I find myself finding all kinds of parallels to my own real world existence in marketing. So when we get into these discussions where philosophers are disparaging rhetoricians or the sophists, I find myself siding with the sophists as I did when we talked about Gorgias. So I'm sort of split on this. I believe that truth is a fetish. By the same token, I also don't think that the use of language for the purpose of persuasion with some kind of malicious intent is warranted either. There's got to be a middle ground there. I don't have to ground myself in the real in order to be able to convince somebody of something, I don't think. But you do have to speak to them at a particular time in a particular place when they are feeling a particular way and you're feeling a particular way, right? Well, yes, but what I have to do is emphasize the things that I want decisions to be made about. Mm -hmm. So there's a section in your book, Linda, you have one color plate. Yes. I fought hard for that color plate, so I (laughs) I, hope you appreciated it. I bet you did. I was imagining it's uh, it's expensive, I'm sure. But And you reproduce color graphs from some of those climate change reports, and you talk about how this particular trend... Of all the various models, there was one that was emphasized in red and had a thicker line. And I just thought, well, yeah, I do that every day. Every time I make Mm -hmm. a PowerPoint where I'm trying to convince somebody like an executive to agree to something or somebody to give me money to invest in something, I emphasize what I want them to see. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean the other stuff isn't there, but this is the way people think. This goes directly to the conflict between philosophy and rhetoric and rhetoric there understood as merely the techne of persuasion. And that techne of persuasion, I guess the philosopher would say, has his own values associated with it, and that it has to be directed towards something. Otherwise, the argument, at least on the Platonic philosophy end, is that it's empty. 
And in the case of uh, the color plate in Linda's book or what you're talking about, Seth, any good presentation of data or argument will enhance the clarity by using various modes of rendition to make it clear. And that clarity is about education, essentially, is that trying to render your ideas as clearly as possible, and you'll use techniques of rhetoric to do that. And on the flip side, you have people using techniques of rhetoric merely to win the argument. And that criticism is as old as Plato and as new as pick some article about lawyers in any newspaper in the country. And that's the criticism that Using rhetoric and charisma merely to win the argument that has nothing to do with whether they're right or most pointedly that they don't even believe it. And this to me ties back to the comment in Linda's conclusion where she was talking about Pilkey. Yeah, Roger Pilkey Jr. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and the notion of the honest broker. I think that notion of an honest broker is is something like what I think my experience would be most scientists would be very comfortable with. And certainly, you know, the doctor who is trying to help a patient decide what their treatment ought to be, that kind of thing, is someone who is using their expert knowledge to try to present as clearly as possible the landscape of possibility in a way that is honest to what those possibilities are without unduly prejudicing the person with either inflammatory characterizations or, in particular, knowing who that person is, avoiding saying certain things because they know that that will push them in a direction away from trying to make a judgment of their own. And that Mm -hmm. is pretty hard. And it is very dependent upon your particular audience. And it relies on the person doing the speaking to be really a great rhetorician in Uh understanding who they are speaking to and presenting that information in a way that preserves the honesty of the information and keeps as much in that honest broker role, keeping as much of the power of that judgment in the hands of the person that is doing the judgment. Yeah, absolutely. It also assumes one more thing, and that is the person that the scientist is talking to wants to make the judgment. Yes. Which, in the cases that I studied, often was not the situation. Often when a scientist would be called to testify in Congress, the Congress people were really waiting for the scientist to tell them what to do. And in that kairos, in that moment where there's that crisis and there needs to be a decision made, the scientist is supposed to speak up, right? The Congress people are really expecting a very certain, strong recommendation to come from the scientist. So I like the honest broker model. I think the chiroid, the situations in which it can work, are actually quite limited. I've only ever, in terms of literature about successful case studies, I've only ever seen a couple, and they have involved institutes that were consulted, not individual people who are called before Congress or individual scientists. That whole section reminded me a lot of my own current experience working for a company in radiation therapy. I do research on devices that deliver external beam radiation. And it is frequently a tension that we would characterize the behavior of our machine, but have to make sure that no one is making conclusions about whether or not it is okay to treat patients with it. And it's both a legal problem and a line that's similar to this sort of scientist versus uh, uh, this honest broker thing, which is Mm -hmm. we want to provide the information that allows you to make an assessment of one piece of the puzzle that would be part of judging whether or not 
you can treat that patient. But we don't want to assent to saying, well, you can treat the patient for sure if X is true, because we know full well that X isn't the only thing that they have to pay attention to. But there's this constant pressure to make that claim that if this number or these three numbers or these 10 numbers are all within spec, then push the button. Then you push the button and you're good to go when that's Mm -hmm. not the case. (laughs) And so there is this constant pressure on the consultant or the authority to say, you're good to go. And a desire to abdicate responsibility for making that choice and saying, well, they told me you could do it. (laughs) This is absolutely true. When you get into larger organizations in the corporate world, the purpose of a manager or leader is to make decisions and to keep morale up. And the goal of people like me and Dylan is to like present people with information and decisions and recommendations, but ultimately the decision has to land on somebody else. And the God's honest truth is, is that the percentage of people who are in positions of decision-making who have what it takes to make those kinds of decisions is relatively small. And what's going to happen... So Dylan works in a much more uh, scientific field than I do, right? I work in technology, consumer, I guess you could say, like sort of more commoditized technology. But the big trend in my industry right now is big data, right? You probably hear this all the time. Big data. Mm-hmm. We're going to take massive data sets and we're going to figure something out. Like they're going to hire PhDs. So here we go again with the expert model. Mm-hmm. And these PhDs are going to figure out how to slice and squeeze and massage all this data. And out are going to come out all these insights that are going to tell us what to do. But you know what's going to come out of there. Patterns. Patterns. Patterns, percentages, probabilities. It just basically turns everything that we experience into a climate model. Health. And yeah, that's right. And someone's got to attach their values to them before decisions get made. Yeah, it's not going to be politicians. It's going to be mid-level marketing managers. <laughs> Armageddon is here. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, I don't know how great Repent. politicians... Repent and be saved. AKA philosopher kings. That's right. right, exactly. Bring it on. Well, I think, you know, in the end, I guess what I would say is that I would hope that we could recognize a political decision for a political decision, like about what to do about climate change. And stop abdicating our responsibility to scientists, to experts. You know, if it's a political decision, there's nothing that says that the scientists, they know more about science. This doesn't mean that they're better people than we are or better citizens than we are, right? So we need to own up to our equality in that situation and our responsibility in that situation and help make the political decision. On the other hand, if decisions get lobbed onto scientists too much... I think we also need to recognize that we have a burden of scientific literacy as well. And we need to at least be able to understand the basic logical structure of these arguments so that we can judge them when they're made in the public sphere a little bit. But, you know, I guess in the end, I wish we would realize that scientists are scientists and they're also people. And so we need to kind of help them make decisions. And also we need to not punish them if they have opinions about things because they are citizens and they are people. And so I think we shouldn't force them to behave like machines or monks and be shocked when they have political ideas and a political consciousness. So I kind of hope we can have a little bit more flexibility on both sides and and break down this is ought line a little bit because I don't think it's doing us any good. I agree with you in that I constantly pointing out that scientists are human beings too and that it's impossible for anybody to be completely agnostic about one thing or the other or be completely devoted towards truth seeking and so forth. But the other piece of the puzzle that happens when you talk about somebody getting a profile, a public profile, Mm -hmm. is that you get the element of fame. 
And we did an episode a while back with Lucy Lawless about fame, and we read a book that basically argued that we needed to have tragic figures, public figures, who we could build up and then tear down because we needed sacrifices. The society needs a sacrifice. And to the extent that once you enter into some sort of a position of notoriety and you become famous, then there's a whole nother, I would say, rhetorical dynamic at work that perhaps if you were entirely behind the scenes and influential without getting in the mindset of the broader public, but all the figures that you mentioned in your book were all people that were not just visible to the public, but actively leveraged the public consciousness to further their agenda. And that, I think, brings on its own set of complications. Because then once you reach a certain stage, you're not allowed to have faults and there's a level of scrutiny and all kinds of other things come into play around that. Yeah, which is why I said I think the honest broker model works a lot better for organizations who can stay kind of not famous and anonymous, right? Mm. But when you have a face to attach to that recommendation, then fame is like almost sure to follow and then all the problems that go with it. Yeah, I want to bring Oppenheimer back into this. So I was looking Ooh. more at this... In- J. Robert Oppenheimer. I was looking more at this encouragement of science essay that we talked a little bit about at the beginning here. And the argument that runs that right, he came to the conclusion that after the whole incident with the bomb, that scientists have to use the progressive model. They have to become politicians themselves. The forces they're working with are too great to then leave the decisions to these goofuses in political office who aren't going to understand, you know, imagine the people in Congress trying to make laws about intellectual property if they don't really understand the internet, just to give one very less death defying <laughs> uh, uh, example. But so in this encouragement of science thing, you know, he's talking to the Science Talent Institute, to future scientists. Mm-hmm. And so he sets it up. The first section is the material benefits of science. So he's saying science frees us, right? It's actually science that it's increased our lifespan. It's lightened our toil. It's enriched our lives. It's given leisure to an ever-widening group of people, made a reasonable education, not only a special privilege, but a common right. So science gives us power. But then the second section, the impact of science on war, but with power comes great responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. We have the bomb now. We could blow ourselves up. I was paying very much attention in, in reading this to the any connections he makes between is and ought because of the overall thesis of Linda's book. He says that scientific advancements have changed the form in which practical problems of right and wrong come before us. They've changed the focus of moral issues, both for the individual and for governments. They've given us new methods of defining the meaning of problems that face us and for judging whether or not our solutions are just. So he's not saying that science gives us, tells us what to do, but it does really change the landscape in which we make moral decisions. You know, just having this more power. Then he wants to say, can the scientific method tell us what to do? Can it give us wisdom? Can it give us political wisdom? Well, no, not in itself, but the scientific spirit, right? Actually, you can't because of the uncertainty that's involved, perhaps in everyday events and political events. He says there's huge differences between a scientific experiment, which is repeatable and political decisions, which are unique acts, right? Every particular situation of the world in which you're making this political decision, that will never exactly come about again. So you have to apply different logic, but still you should use the overall scientific spirit sort of more broadly thought of the spirit of criticism, the spirit of looking to foreign governments and their experiences and saying, how could our laws be? Let's look at if we want to make the most just possible laws, don't be an American chauvinist and say, oh, those Europeans, we have nothing to learn from them. We must keep learning from the world. We must learn from our mistakes. We must 
be open to criticism. We must have the things that we were already emphasizing in discussing this <laughs> essay earlier in here, the openness in government, ultimately democracy. So I guess I wanted to throw that out, whether you think that's an evident non sequitur, <laughs> that he seems to be arguing that, yes, actually, we should put scientists in charge, but not the current scientists. It has to be scientists who are philosophically informed. And I think this is how he really saw himself throughout his career, from his very beginnings to what he was doing in his retirement. He was interested in different kinds of history. He was interested in languages. He was interested in philosophy. He learned Sanskrit so he could read the Bhagavad Gita and other Indian texts. He had this vision of, well, it's not a philosopher king, but it's a scientist sage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that the ones who should be in charge are scientists. Science is a necessary part of being in charge, but it's not sufficient. We have to grow our scientists larger, and those will be the ones that can really make the wise choices. Mm -hmm. But if you think you can just use the scientists as an advisor, and then the rest of you, people that might have put energy into your moral thinking but haven't mastered the science, you're still never going to be equipped to make the decisions that we need to for the society to survive. Right. And, you know, I think I wouldn't necessarily call Oppenheimer a, a technocrat, but he wasn't that far afield. I had missed that, but I was really glad that you brought that up, that science has changed the form in which our problems come before us. The fact that he says that is really key, because what he's essentially saying is the modern problem is, by definition, a science-based problem. These are the glasses we put on to look at the world now. They're science glasses. And so from here on out, any problem that we face as a democracy is going to be filtered through the lens of science. Like that's how we're going to know how, what's going on in our world. And that's a really chauvinistic attitude. We can argue about whether it's true or not. It sure is hard to think of any political debates recently that haven't had a really strong science aspect to them, right? But he's making a really strong claim for science. And he's saying, this is now how we understand the world. And this has to be the foundation. This has to be the evidence that's submitted to any sort of political decisions that we make. And I think that's really the crux of it. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that everything is really founded on scientific knowledge? And if that's so, then yeah, he's absolutely right that we have to be, all be scientifically literate. We have to take into account the best science before we make political decisions. Science, 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 right? If he's right, that's the case. If he's not right, and he's foreclosing on whole areas of human evidence, human experience that are actually crucial for making political decisions, but now have been pushed to the back by this sort of science forward attitude that he's pushing here, then we're putting on blinders. I don't know if that's how you read it. It might just be because I've spent so much time kind of listening to these guys yammer on. But that's what jumps out to me is when he says science has changed the form in which problems come to us. That's a very strong statement. Right. The jump seems to be from scientific method to the spirit of science. And yes, if you take critical thinking is necessary for good <laughs> decision making. Yeah. Sure. Yes. Critical thinking is necessary. But would I characterize critical thinking as the spirit of science? Well, it's certainly a necessary of component it. of science, right. but science does not exhaust it in any right. way. We had the same exact thing when we were talking to our recent guest, David Brin. In one of my exchanges with him, you know, he was saying things like uh, in this philosophy book that he had, had draft that we had given our citizens the opportunity to evaluate. I was actually the only one that took him up on that, <laughs> but you know, started off with this example of science has shown us in recent years, say that racism is wrong. Well, yes, bigotry is certainly an anti-scientific attitude. It's an unreasonable attitude. So you could say, yes, critical thinking is one of the things that has made racism and homophobia and all the rest of it go by the wayside. But characterizing that as an accomplishment of science seems not quite right. Mm -hmm. 
I guess it depends upon how you view quests for universality. I mean, that's the parochialisms that are true about racism and homophobia and other kinds of things are argued against on the basis of a kind of universality that certainly modern science lays claim to being in that ethos. The kudos. Yeah, exactly. It's the you and kudos. Yes. And you'd put things like liberal democracy in that mix as well. And I guess the question is, are they separable? Is it something that science is participating in or is the scientific ethos, at least the kudos version of it, inextricably part of that particular ethos? Yeah, I mean, Tim Ferriss makes the strong argument in his recent book, The Science of Liberty, where he says that basically democracy and science grew up together and you can't have one without the other. So he actually makes the argument that you cannot do science in non-democratic societies, which is a very strong argument to make. And I'm not sure he makes it entirely convincingly with respect to the Russian space program and Chinese science and a few other cases that he treats very somewhat lightly, I think. But I guess that would be Tim Ferriss's argument would be the strong format of that is that you can't have science without democracy and you can't have democracy without science. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to that argument. And my gut would tell me that you can do technology, but you can't do science. Hmm. Because I'm equating science with the scientific ethos that presumes this kind of openness that goes along the lines of a liberal democratic ethos of open criticism, mm-hmm. yada, 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is going to be antithetical to an authoritarian regime. And as you pointed out with Oppenheimer, it doesn't necessarily require an authoritarian regime to quench that part of the scientific ethos. It could be authoritarian within a basically democratic structure. Our democracy was not immune to McCarthyism. I'm sorry, what's the basis that science requires free inquiry and free inquiry is not possible outside of a democracy? Something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think Tim Ferriss's argument was basically like almost all the norms of kudos, his argument was you can't have those outside of a democracy. So you can't have universalism because you're committed to parochialism. You can't have organized skepticism because you're committed to dogma. Kind of what Dylan was just saying. That, mm. that was essentially Tim Ferriss's argument as well. Mm. And so by extension, you couldn't have it within a corporate environment either. You know, that's a good point. It's tough within a corporate environment. It depends upon the corporation, I think, just like it depends upon the polity. The way I would put it is probably a little bit weaker than what I sense that Ferris is arguing, is that there are non-trivial reasons that modern science and liberal democracy grew up together. Mm -hmm. That it's not a coincidence. I guess I just want to point out the divergence between this kudos ethos that we've outlined and then, say, the actual activity of making the atomic bomb that Oppenheimer was in charge <laughs> sure. of. Oh, yeah, for which sure. Which was not all at all disinterested. Nope. There was not room for organized skepticism, except about particular methodological things. It was entirely a technical project. It was not in any way universal or communal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Highly secret. There are elements of that. They purposely put the, all the scientists in the same place so that they could work together, so that even while they were having lunch, they would be spilling these brilliant ideas to each other. And Oppenheimer was specifically arguing that you needed some place like Los Alamos where everybody would be packed together and they would not be spread across different universities across the country working on pieces of this because of that communalism aspect. Mm-hmm. So to accomplish a particular task, yes, you did need elements of this. You needed, certainly if there was any dogmatism, 
by one of the scientists like that wouldn't work. No, you need to really critically evaluate every single idea and really be very egoless about it in a certain way to get the job done. But it's I think that enough has been said here. The difference between a real technological effort and this open ended scientific Oh, the data will go where it may. Truth will lead where it may, which sounds like what kudos is pointing mm-hmm. toward is something like experimental philosophy. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And I think it's really important to just reinforce that kudos is normative, not descriptive in terms of science. Ah, yes. Just like Oppenheimer's description of the scientist sage. Yes. These are all ideals. Yeah, ideals. That's right. And when you grow up, young scientists who are 20 right now, you will become these scientist sages that are impossible for us, but it's just because we have been tainted in our generation. And of course, in the future, it will be different. I grew up, you know, in my professional career in sort of the great grandchild of what Oppenheimer started. So particle physics, even now, is the direct descendant in the US of the Manhattan Project. And all the big national labs were funded through the Department of Energy, which earlier was the Department of Atomic Energy. Fermilab and Slack and Brookhaven were all part of this. And, and in fact, particle physics was just big, 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 big science and also you know, where you wanted to be, just like the space program in the 60s, because of the Manhattan Project, really. I mean, and the success of that. And you had the ability of Wilson when Fermilab was being proposed for some outrageous amount of money at the time that congressional hearings were being held and some senator asked, will building Fermilab contribute to the security and defense of the United States? And Robert Wilson says, building Fermilab will make the United States worth defending, which incidentally is rhetorically brilliant. (laughs) And my experience was something like what was just described of getting together a whole bunch of scientists in one place. And on the one hand, it's very insular. On the other hand, it's very acrimonious. I mean, there's just knockdown, drag out fights about what it is that's being claimed and whether or not people are right or not right. So, on the one hand, it's on a very constrained set of questions, the kinds of questions that would allow Oppenheimer to say, the science is really awesome. It's so cool, right? And mm-hmm. when you're trying to hunt the top quark, you don't have the question of, well, you know, you can go use this and kill three million people all at once. Th- those aren't the stakes. You evidently haven't seen my new horror screenplay, <laughs> Top Quark. <laughs> <laughs> top Quark of Doom. <laughs> oh, Mark's getting silly. Uh, it's getting late. Oh, that was awesome. <laughs> Yeah. My experience on that is to be within the constraint of trying to decide what was justified and not justified. I was just continually impressed with how hard people were on each other, how challenging the conclusion was, and the kinds of internal balances there were, and the willingness to listen to multiple voices. And it might be that That impression was absolutely true, but the stakes were so amorphous and absent the economic and political pressures that that kind of ideal situation could flourish, that no one was going to make money off the top cork and no one was going to kill anybody with the top cork. So, you just could let the scientists do what they wanted to do. 
and there weren't going to be pharmacology companies swooping in to try to make sure that things are kept secret to make extra money and there weren't going to be generals coming in to make sure things are kept secret in order to maintain military advantage. Today, yeah, for sure. Um, But, you know, I think we all know that what has seemed like tangential or purely theoretical science finds its way into the public sphere, into application in ways that are hard to predict early on. And so I think probably, Dylan, like Oppenheimer was probably talking to you too, in a way, when he was just saying, hey, look, all I want you to do is just to hold these things in tension, to remember that this satisfying, this beautiful, this productive thing that you're doing also has ripples outside of your lab. And I think Oppenheimer was saying, I just need you to hold those things in tension, the beauty in here and the possible problems it can create out there. I used to teach at a a technical school and I had students who were working on national defense projects. A lot of them were working on bits and pieces of drone systems. And so I would say, you know, hey, what are you working on in your junior design lab? And they would say, oh, you know, this little widget. And I would say, well, what does that widget go into? Oh, I don't know. And I would be like, well, I know. I know what your professor is doing. It goes into this guidance system, and that guidance system goes into a drone. And that drone is designed to be used in counterterrorism. And the student would just kind of look at me, and I would say, do you have any feelings about that? You know, this little problem that you're solving, it's going to end up in this bigger problem. How do you feel about that? And the student just kind of look at me, and that was all I was looking for, is just that tension that Oppenheimer was looking for. And I just want that to be your world. Your world not to just stop here at the lab walls. I want your world to go out where your work is going to go. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that we see the same thing in philosophy, a kind of uh, falling in love with one's ideas and a kind of massaging of them internally without mm-hmm. holding that tension with other things enough so as to uh, weigh it. Yeah, and there's not the same right answer in every situation. There's not the same right answer for everyone. For me, this is what Latour said. He says, scruples, that's the core of morality. That niggling feeling that, hey, maybe there's another perspective. Maybe I need to rethink this. As a matter of fact, uncertainty, that may be the core of morality. Seth, any last words? Hmm. Let me just make sure I touched on my points here. Stop touching your points. (laughs) So uh, one of the things that came out of this with this notion, I got very taken with the idea that it's very problematic for the isot divide when you realize that, and many of these problems are based on probabilities and this notion of uncertainty. So, you know, when we were in high school, uh, they used to teach us how to balance a checkbook. And I think that maybe now that needs to be replaced with uh, a pretty strong course in statistics. I think everybody should. Mm-hmm. Here, here. A vibrant democracy relies on the ability to understand statistics. And Going back to the point that the purpose of the prophetic ethos structure that you've laid out is to bring the community to certainty. And seeking certainty is really very, very human desire. To me, the search for certainty is in some sense what's behind the fetishization of the truth. It's behind movements like verificationism. And I think what would be great is if people could find a way to learn a little. You can still consciously and actively make decisions while living in ambiguity and uncertainty. So I was brought to mind of some of the other things that we've studied around like existentialism and this notion of radical freedom, which I think is popular with, you know, 21 year olds, (laughs) but not ultimately perhaps having the effect on the mainstream of uh, philosophical thought as one might hope are indicative of this, that there really are counter strains in the intellectual tradition, simply because they fight against that human instinct to want to have absolute knowledge, truth with a capital T, and 
certainty. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for joining us. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. This is fantastic, guys. Really appreciate it. Next time, we'll be discussing sections of the book, Liberalism and the Limits of Justice, from 1998 by Michael J. Sandel. To see what parts to read exactly, check out PartiallyExaminedLife.com. We are supported by your donations. Go to PartiallyExaminedLife.com to make a contribution. Big donors since last time have included Toby Lobaoni, Aaron Schur, Jimmy Latin, Daniel Meissner, Penny Green, Lorian Gable, Amy Hamilton, Amir Zaki, Adrian Cho, Carlos Brito, Martin Dempsey, and Adam Schipano. Thanks also to these smaller donors, including those who are newly or on a continued basis signed up for our $5 a month citizen site. We're on Twitter. We have a Facebook group. We've got the blog, which you can uh, subscribe to, so you get a near-daily email of uh, nuggets of interest. Thanks, everybody, and good night. Yeah. Good night. Thanks, you guys. Good Thank night. Thank you. Bye. So now you've got yourself psyched up And if it please you take me with you Move it there, move it there And though you think you're time enough I'd better hurry and forgive you Move it there, move it there What I'm talking about is the point that you raised about the things you decided not to save and the person you were before I met you? Whom I think I should know by now. I mean, I live with all your stuff, and it's a blessing to be with you. Now we're there, now we're there. So now. It's time to open up Nothing's embarrassing enough to Move it there Cause I'm scared What I'm talking about Is the point that you raised About the things you decided Not to save And the things that you still think about I've noticed You think I don't know by Are stronger with some lines cut. Requests enough sharpening my love to cut out the banks between us. Hold it there, hold it there. So now I'm waiting for a stick from you, and I think that I can take it. Plant it there. I'll be aware While you're talking about How we should be closer I've been wondering Which of our urges is grosser And I'm not sure that we Need to see that closely Yet you know that it's there And you're not too bothered What I'm talking about